What's up, everyone? I'm Josh Aarons, and this is the Israel Collective Podcast. Today, we're talking with our friend John Seidel, whose book just came out called Finding Rest, A Survivor's Guide to Navigating the Valleys of Anxiety, Faith, and Life. I don't know about you, but I can always find a little more rest in my life wherever I can get it. We talk about what every Christian should understand about these issues, and also how the church can grow and improve in its response to mental health issues. John also has a background in the news and shares some great insights on what he saw in the latest coverage of Israel compared to what he saw firsthand on our trip. Check it out. John, welcome to the podcast. I am so glad to be here. It's like, it's just really like catching up with old friends. Yeah, man. We, I think we were just calculating. It's been over six years since you came on that trip. It seems like we just talked. It seems like we were just there hanging out in the Galilee. Yeah. And what's funny is, I, and I didn't realize this at the time, and I don't think I even realized this until like just a few months ago when we got together. You're like, that was, I was on the second trip ever. You were. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think you told me that, but probably better because my wife was, would have been more nervous. <laughs> oh, was, was she nervous really? Well, my wife at the time was seven months pregnant. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. And so oh. it was like, you know, leaving her to like, you're leaving a seven month old, you know, pregnant woman. And then you're going to go to like this hotbed of terror and you may never come back. And I'm like, I, I just, I don't think it's going to be quite like that. You're like, no, it's not like that. I'm actually just going to be having a really great time with friends, you know, while you're yeah. here at home. I'm going to hold the rockets, but they're not going to be fired at me, which, which happened. That's true. That is true. Trip number two, we just went in, man, like, hey, check out these rockets. These, they're not being fired right now, but they were. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely hits home. It's, I'm, I'm sure when you saw the rockets being fired a couple of months ago, it probably Absolutely. hit home for you. Yeah. Right. It gave, it gave me a context that I didn't have. And I, and I think in, in a way, especially like growing up, um, you know, you just hear about Mideast conflict and it's like, it becomes like wallpaper, you know? But then when you're there and you like literally hold a rocket that was fired at a school, like just down the hill, it gives a lot more like appreciation for what is actually happening, you know? And so, I mean, there's, there's obviously several things and so many things I love about what you guys are doing in the Israel Collective and, and thankful for what you did for me. But like, that's, that's been one of the lasting memories one of the lasting lessons for me of just like I think just in culture today we have a tendency to dehumanize or separate from events Mm -hmm. uh, dehumanize people and separate from events and so like the more that we can experience the more that we can get in other people's shoes you know um, the more that it like actually you know helps make sense of what's going on so I could get on a soapbox but there you go get on that soapbox man <laughs> so when you when you saw those events on the news say a couple months ago israel experiencing rocket fire you've you've been there you've been to steroid you've been to these towns kind of on the border with gaza that are mm-hmm. the target of these attacks would you say when you saw that on the news recently what was the first thing that went through your mind and did you have an impression of how it was being presented on the news and um yeah i mean i think um you all, uh, when, when we went there and it's like some of the people that we talked to, I think it was a Colonel at one point that we went and met with at that wall. Um, 
you just realize like there's always more to the story. And even though like I've been in journalism and media for my entire life, and so I know that, but but when you actually like experience it and, and hear from people and, and no one understand, like there is always more to the story. Um, listen, as, I, as I've gotten older, like I've gotten a lot more gray hairs in my beard, much to my daughter's chagrin. She'll, she'll, come, she'll come up by like the other day, she came up on my lap. She's like, daddy, she was like crying. She's like, you're going to die. And I'm like, what? what? What are you talking about? She's like, you've got grandpa beard. Uh, I'm like, baby, I'm not going to die. She's like six years old. But anyways, like as I've grown even older, um, I just think like rarely things are black and white, you know? And, and, and I think we, we so often try to make them black and white. And I, I don't think that's always bad, right? I mean, to a certain degree, like there's right and wrong, there's truth and there's untruth. And so, you know, I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis. And like, I think the greatest book ever written is called The Abolition of Man. And it's a just Lewisian takedown of um, moral relativism. And I actually, I, I, I make sure to read it every year because it's a good reminder to me <clears throat> that there is truth, there is verifiable, verifiable facts. And so like, again, like, like black and white in those instances is not bad, but um, I do think there's a tendency to not want to see nuance, to not want to see things, you know, I've heard it said that like, the and I'll botch it a little bit and make it my own, I guess, but that the the true like example of intelligence is being able to hold two competing things um, together and and like they can both be true. You know what I mean? And so I, I think like the, the the most simplest form of this is like I can love my daughter and still discipline her, you know, like 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 to, in her mind as a six-year-old, like she can't hold those two things to be true in the moment, right? Um, I think us as people of faith, even though like, even though she's six and I'm in my mid thirties, like I still struggle with that with God. Like, like, like I, God can love me and like things that are bad still happen to me. And both of those things can be true, you know? Um, so all that is a very long answer to that, like, when I see things on the news now, I just always feel like there's more nuance. I feel like there's always more to the story. Um, and I feel, you know, it, it's a reason like I love your guys' social media, right? Your Instagram, your Facebook, like I feel like you're always giving more than just, <laughs> listen, when I was in the news business, right? Like if there's a sin, if there's like a new sin I need to ask repentance for, it is that, it is, I made it really easy to justify catchy headlines. Now, I still think catchy headlines are important, right? Like, if no one reads your story, if you don't have a headline that's going to pe get people to read your story, like, like why write it? You know what I'm saying? It's like, like if, if you have the greatest, you know, um, medical miracle in the world, but you don't market it, like, do you really have the greatest medical miracle in the world? If, if no one knows about it, like, what's mm -hmm. the point? So I still believe that to a certain extent, but I think, you know, uh, I fell into the trap in, in my years in the news business of, of airing too much on like, let me give a great headline. But like, if there's no payoff there, if you actually don't deliver on that, or if you don't 
educate people or, or give the full story, like you've done a disservice. And so I think that's a lot of what happens in today's news media. And that's not like, like, by the way, that's not like a conservative or liberal thing or Republican or Democrat thing. It's like all of it, you know, um, it, like everyone has fallen into that trap. Yeah, I think so. And I think there's a difference between a, a well-written headline that maybe just piques your interest or leaves a little something, you know, that makes you want to know more and then read the article. And then there are those headlines that are, they're almost just designed to shock or, you know, maybe give a false impression to kind of right. trick someone into reading, which is, you know, not something you do, but definitely something I saw, um, you know, when that, that conflict was in its full, yeah, its full form. There was a lot right. of, and usually I think level, you know, first level, very to, to Israel's detriment, almost, you know, almost a hundred percent of the time. And yet at the same time to the detriment of the Palestinians as well, who were living under Hamas, who's, you know, firing rockets from their neighborhoods and their homes. And that was something we tried to really go in on and explain was this is bad for Israelis and Palestinians because you mm. see this dynamic of, oh, you have to choose. You have to be either pro-Israel or pro-Palestinian. And we we're saying, no, you can be pro-Israel and still care about the Palestinians and vice versa. Absolutely. Should, right? And, you know, the real, the real um, instigator in the thing kind of came to light when, when you put it in that correct framework, then it's like, okay, it's Hamas and terrorism and, you know, the way we excuse or make excuses for it or, you know, write bad headlines, uh, you know, about it that is the real, the real problem. But um, yeah, I think that's a great point. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of great writing and great books, you have done something I envy so much and I admire so much because I'm still uh, <laughs> disciplining myself enough to, to one day do this, but you have written an amazing book that I want to talk to you more about called Finding Rest, which is already like, yes, please. I want, you know, I want more of that for sure. So let's jump into that, man, and tell me a little bit about the book and, and why you wrote it. Yeah, so... Um... The book, is, yeah, it's called Finding Rest, A Survivor's Guide to Navigating the Valleys of Anxiety, Faith, and Life. And so I am, um, I don't like to use the term survivor, right, uh, like, like too much, but um, in this case, I feel like it's, it, it really fits. Um, and so I'm an anxiety and OCD survivor, but I'm really like, the, the only other bad part of that term is like, it, it makes it seem like um, I'm out of the water you know, like I've survived. And so like, I'm out of the water and I'm on the beach. But I think my point that I also try to make in the book is like, this is an ongoing battle for me. Like I'm not drowning, but you know what? I'm still kind of like waiting in the sandbar, you know, and sometimes the riptide, you know, takes me out still, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, um, so it's really about my experience with being like growing up, knowing something was different about me, not really being able to put a finger on it. And early in my marriage, it, it kind of finally came to a head. Um, actually, actually, like just just a little before I went on my trip to Israel. So I was very young in in my understanding of, of fully what was going on and naming and 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 diagnosing my um, my mental health struggle. And so you know, I talk about like a how that came to be. Um, B like why there is power in naming it. You know, I think sometimes we, and, and, and um, I don't want to paint too wide of a brush here, but I think especially men um, that struggle, we don't like to say what it is. You know, there's kind of this machismo that we have to 
you know, exude or, or we have to be strong and, you know, things like this don't affect us. Or if they do, like, I can just get over it. And I mean, that's just such bull. Um, yeah, just ignore it and it'll go away. That yeah, exactly. And, and even like, by the way, even like, especially in the church, like if you just have enough faith, if you pray enough, if you repent, like, you know, then, then all this will go away. And that's like, that's just as much bull as the other thing. <laughs> and so. And maybe um, they push back on, they, they'll say, don't even give it a name. Some people might say, don't, don't right. even, yeah. Oh yeah. You're giving it power by naming it. And, and actually, and, and that's by the way, a faith tradition that I grew up in. Right. Like, like, <laughs> I mean, sometimes like my stepdad, um, I live in the South now, so I can say bless his heart. Um, who is now with Jesus, but, uh, you know, like my stepdad would like have a cold, like, like visible cold. Like, I mean, the, the snot is running out of his nose. He's hacking up a lung. You like, Mike, are you sick? No, I'm not sick in Jesus name. I'm not sick. You know, I'm like, Mike, you're sick. Like, it's okay. To, like admit you're sick and like take some medication, you know? Um, and that's really kind of, uh, uh another con concurrent message of the book. Like you can still have faith and admit that you have a mental health struggle. You know, you can still have faith and believe Jesus is good and believe God is working all things for your good and his glory. And, and that all things will work together for the good of those who love and are called according to his purpose. Like you can recite that scripture and still say, and by the way, I have anxiety and OCD. Like those don't have to be in either, or they can be a both hand. And so that's like a huge message that I'm trying to bring through the book, you know? Um, and so I actually think contrary to, to kind of what some people have said in the faith community, like you, you know, you don't give something power by naming it. You actually take power by naming it. And so even Josh, I mean, like, okay, you know, as we talk about Israel, like you look back in ancient Jewish culture and you got power over something by naming it, right? Like, like, like God gave us in the garden, this responsibility of naming something, right? And, and by naming it, like, like we were asserting our dominion over it, right? Mm -hmm. Like we were asserting the fact that no, we, we were greater than that, right? We were greater than the animals, um, and so by naming my anxiety and OCD, it actually gave me more power over it. Right. And, and, and because and also in the end, like I can't fight something that I don't name. I can't fight something, you know, that, that I can't see if you will. Right. And so by naming it, I can see it. I, you know, instead of just taking shots in the dark, like I'm like, no, this is where, this is where my arrow is going. Mm, that's good. Taking aim. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and it's, I mean, it's, it's remarkable too that in the first chapter of the Bible, God creates the universe with words. Yeah, right. The logos, right? It's the most powerful tool we have is, and, and we have the power to create and maybe even the power to destroy, definitely power to destroy with words. Mm -hmm. um, and you can, if you can channel it for good, then you can, you can overcome you know, I use this, this story in the book that like my niece <clears throat> was living with us for a little bit. And she said, um, Hey uncle, like, can you, I don't know if it was like change a light bulb or something. There's something that she asked me to do that was fairly simple in her car. And so I go and I like sit in her passenger seat and I like turn the car on and there's like the check engine light comes on. And I'm like, how long has this check engine light been on? She's like, Oh, I don't know. A few weeks. I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me? And she's like, well, I was just hoping it would go away. And I'm like, like, 
like that's ridiculous, right? If your check engine light comes on, like just hoping for it to go away is not going to make it go away. Like it's telling you that there's something wrong that you need to address. And similarly, like with my anxiety, like that's my, that's like a check engine light for me. It's telling me that something is wrong and that I need to address. And what I have found is that that like the, the me addressing it is both in a physical sense and a spiritual sense. You know, I think so many times in the church today, there's this tendency to only like call it something spiritual. And so, you know, what I'm trying to come along and say is like, no, it's both. And, and admitting that it can be like a physical, like there's literally physical things going on in my brain. There's synapses that are misfiring or there's, you know, levels that are off that need to be normalized. That's not, that's not saying I don't have a spiritual issue. Like, heck yeah, I have a spiritual issue. Like I'm a prideful person. Like I I want control. I have a tendency not to believe the promises of God. Like, you know, there's selfishness. Like all of those things are definitely at the root of this. But until I address the physical side, I'm never in a position to address the spiritual side. Like, you know, if I'm having panic attacks, I'm not gonna be like, let me just, you know, open up Romans, you know, five. You know, it's like, no, in that moment, I literally just need to breathe. Like physically, I need to breathe, <laughs> you know? So um, this idea that like, if we just ignore it, if we don't admit what it is, if we, if, if we have a hesitancy to it, to recognize the physical, well, everything else will just go away. I mean, there's so many areas in life where we know that not to be true, but some reason we don't apply it in, when it comes to mental health. Mm, so interesting. Yeah. And, and you even see it in the Bible too, that there, there's a, a physical component to all sorts of things. It's, it talks about working out your salvation, right? There's an mm. action component to everything you do. So part of believing or thinking something is the physical side of acting it out or, or, you know, doing something physical to cause a, maybe a spiritual or a mental effect. You know, there's this other section I talk about too in the book and to that point, I don't pretend to be a, you know, a theologian. I don't pretend to be a counselor. I don't pretend to be a doctor. But what I am is someone who's gone through this and kind of looked at this and, and trying to offer a layman's perspective. So in the Bible, there's this, there's this time where like Paul goes to Timothy. Um, oh, by the way, can you like drink some more wine for your physical ailments? Like people forget about that, like the, this thing. And now I'm not saying, and, and I have to be careful about how much wine I drink, right? Like as someone who struggles with anxiety, like I have to be cautious about any type of coping mechanism or, or turning to anything. But, but my point in bringing that up in the book is like, Paul wasn't like, Timothy, um, so you have these frequent ailments and you need to pray about them more. Like literally, Paul recommends a just like a physical prescription for, a phys for, for this problem that Timothy is experiencing, right? And we forget that. Mm. And, and it's, it's a verse in the Bible that even like if you look in the ESV, it's literally a parenthetical, right? So it's easy to miss. Like it's literally set off in, in parentheses. And oh, by the way, drink some more wine for your physical ailments. And it's like, well, wait, Paul, like the greatest apostle recommending, like prescribing, if you will, a type of medication for Timothy's, you know, frequent ailments. Holy cow. Like, let's not ignore that. Right. Right. Wow. That's really good. 
Uh, I'd love to hear more about your your backstory. What's been your journey? Kind of when did when did this whole journey start? And I know you you incorporate a lot of your story in the book, so it's it's amazing that you're able to to share yeah. that. Yeah. So you know, I think growing up, I always realized something was different. Hmm. Um, I think the best way to describe it is is in two ways. One, thoughts would get in my head, ideas obsessions if you will that I just could not get over and that sometimes I could be as small as like you know someone says something to me and it it really hurts and stings to the point of like I'm thinking about it for days or hey I like this girl and I can't stop thinking about this girl like in one sense you're like oh so romantic and then you're like no I literally cannot stop thinking about this girl you know <laughs> like so 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 that's like one aspect um just not being able to get rid of thoughts in my head. Mm. And then the other aspect would be just kind of this, like when things would happen, bad things, um, exciting things, um, just things maybe that wouldn't go as how I planned. It just like physically kind of felt like I was at the edge of a cliff staring down. And mm. so like, if you've been at uh, the edge, of, if you've been to the Grand Canyon, right. And kind of like, there's those certain areas you can go, or maybe there's not a fence and you kind of you know, sneak out and you like, you look down and like that, that, that rises up inside of you, your, your heart is racing that, that your stomach is, is like, Whoa, Holy crap. Um, mm -hmm. that, that was consistently my state of being more often than not. And honestly, Josh, like, I have no idea how I got through high school and college. I mean, I guess I do like the grace of God. Right. But, um, you know, I remember being in youth, youth group at church and yet, you know, the pastor's like, you know, live your life in a way that like, like go back to school. And if you live your life, like, like, you know, in a certain way, like people are going to look at you and they're going to want what you have, you know, and what you have is Jesus. And I remember, I remember sitting there one day being like, why would anyone want this? You know, like I, I, you know, I'm constantly worrying. I'm constantly in a state of, of what I came to understand to be panic and anxiety. And, um, but that was just kind of how it was. And, and, and really like through the first few years of my marriage, that was life, you know, and, and it kind of came to a head. Like my wife, one day we got, we got in an argument over the wrong sweetener in my coffee, which sounds like really stupid. I mean, it is really stupid. Like I can admit that, but as someone like with OCD, that's being untreated, like the littlest things throw you for a loop. Mm -hmm. And so if, if someone's listening to this right now and has anxiety or OCD, and, and by the way, anxiety, uh, anxiety, OCD is a subset of anxiety, right? If you have OCD, you have anxiety. I kind of lump it all together um, because OCD is a type of um the falls under the anxiety disorders. But if you have anxiety, like that scenario will, will not seem for, will not be foreign to you. Like little things just can throw you for a loop. And so wrong sweetener, my coffee at a coffee shop with my wife and fast forward that night or the next morning, she's just sitting down in front of me, just broken. Mm. And she's like, John, like, I don't think you understand what it's like to be walking on eggshells in this relationship, not knowing what might send you into a, and by the way, it's not like send me into a rage. It's not like, um, that was just kind of this like Hulk walking around, like punching walls or, or anything, but really what that would send me into like a thought spiral, mm -hmm. um, is, is really what would 
really hamper our relationship because it could be days before I got out of that days. And she's like, I just need to know if this is the rest of my life. You know, like I'm here, I'm staying. She's like, I'll admit this isn't really what I thought I was signing up for, but listen, we're in a marriage covenant. And so um, I'm not leaving, but like, I just need to prepare myself. Is this the rest of our life? And, you know, as we kind of talked, she's like, listen, can you just please get help? Like, this is not normal. This is not normal. And it was kind of like that conversation. I think she really broke through and just the, the way that she communicated it, um, the emotion, the rawness, the realness, the openness. And so that's really what led me to finally get help and, and kind of go back to everything we said earlier, got help and finally named it and said, oh yeah, you have GAD and OCD. Oh, one of the happiest days of my life being diagnosed with that because I knew what to, what to fight, you know? Yeah, now there's something you can do about it. It's like a whole, right. a turning point. It's like, you know, people like ignorance is bliss, you know? And it's like, no, like, I'll tell you what, if I have cancer ravaging my body, well, it may be hard to hear that diagnosis. I want that diagnosis. You know, I have a, I have a pastor friend, actually one of the guys who endorsed the book, his wife just found out she had cancer by accident. Like she, she felt a lump on her chest. She went in to get it checked and, and the lump was actually like nothing. Like it wasn't anything, but through that process, they found out, oh, like that lump isn't cancer or anything, but you actually have other cancer in your body. Like, yeah, Whoa. that's hard to hear, but by the grace of God, she heard it. Like she got that news. And now, you know, instead of having stage five cancer in two, like she wasn't even supposed to get regular mammograms for like another five years. So instead of having stage five cancer in five years, she's got stage one cancer. And now like the prognosis is like a hundred percent, you know? Wow. It's better to know. It's better to name it. This this idea that ignorance is bliss is just ridiculous. Wow. Yeah. And what what I hear just from your story so far is that there's there's so much hope out there. And so if if someone's experiencing this, these kinds of things, um, there is there's a lot you can do. And there's a lot of hope out there. And I think one of the biggest challenges really is even where do I go? Who do I turn to? Who do I talk to about this? I've never been to maybe a psychiatrist or or just I don't even know what kind of professional would necessarily handle this kind of thing. So where would you say people should look as a, as a first step to even, you know, is this the path I want to go down and who would I talk yeah. to about it? So I think the first step, and, and you're kind of um, assuming that it's happening, but I do want to go and, and kind of undergird that is, is to talk about it right? And so like, maybe you're listening to this and you're hearing this. And, and if you get the book, you'll see, like, I go through a lot more examples that, that, that could help you kind of identify, like, um, I, I try to draw a distinction between, you know, like everyone goes through some normal anxieties of life, even some like normal, sad episodes, you know? Um, but I try to help you understand, like, like, is it starting to hamper aspects of your life? You know, like, that's how you can try to di differentiate between like a clinical, um, and kind of more, more so like a normal or episodic, you know, just kind of ups and downs. Mm -hmm. And so if you're, if, if you're in that stage, if you're at that point where you're like, yeah, I, I, I'm wondering if this is like just a little bit more than just, you know, normal, quote unquote, normal sadness, you know, I, like talk to someone and that someone can be a variety of people that someone can be a pastor. It can be a counselor. Um, 
it can be a psychiatrist or it can even just be your family physician. You know, like I went to a psychiatrist initially, but now I just go to my regular primary care physician who, get, you know, prescribes my medications and monitors everything for me, you know? Um, and so I would just like take that step to, to talk to someone. Um, and, and like, maybe they tell you like, Hey, John, you know, like, no, this isn't like, I actually see this a lot. It's a little bit more normal than maybe you realize and fine. You know, I'm not out here trying to like diagnose everyone that has even one panic attack with anxiety. Listen, my wife, the other day, small business owner, and just some things happening in her business that are really stressful. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I, it's like, this is really weird, but like my chest is really tight. My heart is racing. My stomach is upset. And like, so basically she starts describing like every sign of a panic attack. And I'm like, babe, you're having a panic attack. She's like, no, I'm not having a panic attack. I'm like, I, I'm not going to say I wrote the book on it, but I might, I might've written the book on it. And you're having a panic attack, you know, and, but like, I'm not here telling then my wife, like, go to a psychiatrist, get on medication, you know, that kind of thing. Like, that's not my goal, right? My goal is for you to get help and for you to like, literally find rest. And so um, by talking to someone, like, you're not like dooming yourself to a life of medication forever. Although if that's what God has for you so far in my life, that's what God has had for me. And I can tell you that it's actually taken me more faith and more trust um, to say like, Lord, I don't want to be on this. I don't want to have this, but so far this is what you have had for me. And I need to like literally give that up. That actually takes a little bit more faith <laughs> on my part. Um, so I just, just talk to someone and see and, and, and be open about it. And then I think once there, once you realize what you're fighting, you know, that's where kind of talk about a lot of the next steps in the book that you can, that you can take from there. Wow. Wow. So once you, once you, once you rounded that corner, how did, how did your life change initially? And, um, you know, as you, as you went forward over the years. So it's funny, my wife, my wife, we kind of have like an acronym, like, like, uh, you know, BMAM, like before medication, after medication. So for me, it was like medication was, um, was the prescription, right? And that wasn't easy. Uh, you know, I said, I grew up in a kind of a faith tradition earlier. That was much more like, if you have faith, like it'll go away. Um, and so like that led to some hard conversations. Um, and so that could be you, if you're listening to this, like that may require some hard conversations. And I talk about the, one of the hardest conversations of my life with my mother um, in telling her that it did not go well. Um, but so for me, it was medication. And, but I, but I want to make something abundantly clear here, you know, um, that like, that is not a, like my, <laughs> I'm on, I'm on like Prozac. It's like one of the oldest, like depression, anxiety medications there is out there. And, um, but it's not a magic pill, right? Like, I want to reiterate what I said of like, so basically what my medication does is if I'm normally an eight on the nervous anxiety scale, my medication kind of brings me down to like a four. And so it doesn't like take it all away, um, but it allows me to maybe approach it from a more rational perspective. You know, um, it allows me to see it for what it is. It allows me to then do 
the hard work of rooting out some of those deeper heart issues. It allows me to like be like, you know what? Maybe this is a coping mechanism instead of a healthy approach to fill in the blank. Alcohol, Chinese food, you know, like, and that's like, I laugh about that one, but that's literally something I have to be on the lookout for. Like gluttony is just as much of a sin, you know, as some of these other, you know, seven deadly sins, right? So like, am I using like my favorite food to try to like numb my pain? Like, oh, my medication helps me be in a position to realize that that's what I'm doing here, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, so for me, that was like, I turned the corner and that was, and that was the realization in, in that I, that I came to, but it's, it, it, there's an entire chapter that I titled the ongoing battle. And so I know I've referenced that earlier of like admitting it, getting on medication, seeing a counselor, you know, early on, I was seeing that counselor very regularly. Now I kind of go in for tune-ups and, and, and checkups, you know, um, and all of that does not mean I'm out of the water. I'm not drowning, thank the Lord. But, um, you know, listen, the, the Lord gave Paul this thorn in his flesh for whatever reason, you know? And so for whatever reason, like, I'm not out of the water. And I'll tell you what, I think part of the reason I'm not on the water, because I think the Lord knows, at least in this season and stage in my life, that I need to still be in the water and feel the um feel the waves to know that like i i still need to rely on you lord and so right now like like maybe my pride is a a bigger issue josh than i realize you know like maybe i'm a i'm a much more prideful person than i realize and the lord's like i'm going to continue to have you struggle with this because i know that if i were to take this all away like you'd automatically you know just become this this prideful arrogant you know what you know? And so I need you to know that you have to continue relying on me. All right. I got to trust in that. You know, Charles Spurgeon said, like, I've learned to, to, to kiss the waves that have thrown me against the rock of ages. And I'm like, I guess I need to pucker up. <laughs> wow. That's a good outlook too, because no matter what, I mean, it's, it's just a part of life. Suffering's a part of life. Hardship as a part of life. And even earlier, you were talking about love, and it's to demonstrate true love, real love, there has to be some kind of hardship or some kind of sacrifice involved in that, or it's, it's just not, it's not love necessarily, there's no, nothing for it to, you know, be contrasted against. So I think that's yeah. amazing. I think integrating those ideas in your life are going to take you a long way um, in, in dealing with those things and, and then making them into something beautiful. Like you've taken a, you know, a hard experience and then you've made it into a book, which is going to help millions of people. Mm. That's, that's astonishing. So you, you mentioned uh, a, a theology of suffering Yes. in your book. I'd love to talk about that, you know, a nice, nice light topic for our listeners. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's so important. Yeah. <laughs> I would say this is, what I feel like is one of the most important ideas and threads. Like it's not just one chapter. I mean, there is one chapter where I, where I really unpack it, but this kind of, not just a theology of suffering, but what I would say is a proper theology of suffering. Mm -hmm. What it boils down to is this, that my struggles, my, my pain, my anxiety, my depression, the death of my sister and stepdad within two years of each other, all of those things are for like, God has promised to use them for my good and his glory. Mm 
And so said another way, like a proper theology of suffering, and this is a quote that was said by a pastor out in Arizona, and the name is slipping me right now, but I give him proper credit in the book, but is that I determine, I don't determine who God is by my circumstances. I determine my circumstances by who God is. Mm. And so like, it's a really important juxtaposition, right? The, the, the former way says something bad has happened to me, so, so therefore God is bad. The other way says something bad has happened to me, but God is good, and therefore there's something greater or something else at work or that he is going to do. So even just in that example that I gave earlier, you know, like I have to, like a proper theology of suffering, like looks at myself and says, I continue to struggle with anxiety and OCD and depression at times. And so like, what is God doing in that, right? Like, well, Josh, you brought up a great point. Like people are not going to be helped by my words, but they're going to be helped by like what the Lord has showed me, right? And and I don't claim to like have a special, you know, that's like not like Gnosticism. Like I'm not pretending that I have special revelation, right? I give a lot of credit to where credit is due in the book. But yet the Lord has kind of like given me the opportunity and the platform to talk about it. And so like, wow, maybe that's, maybe the Lord is up to that, you know? Or maybe... I am a really prideful person. And the Lord's like, nope, going to keep you knocked down a little bit here, sir. Um, and so I, I think we don't preach that enough in, especially in those like very um, clear terms in the church, the big C church today. I think there's much more of a propensity to teach a theology of suffering that is cause and effect. You've done this so God is doing this to you. You've not done this. So God is withholding this from you. Um, and, and that's, I think that's, it's a, it's a dangerous thing. And it's, a, and it's a works, works-based theology. It's yes. not the theology of grace or of what the gospel is about. You know, that says that you can curry God's favor, that God is kind of some sort of genie that if, you know, in, in a Christina Aguilera way, I guess, if you rub him the right way, you know, like he's going to give you what you want. And it's just like not true. Um, and it's not what we see. And so, you know, I kind of go through the book of Job. The book of Job changed my life. Um, the chapter in the book is called the most important book of the Bible. <laughs> because for me, it really was, right? And you see a lot of um, the sovereignty of God and growing up in in my upbringing like that was kind of a dirty word because it was like no the sovereignty of god that's well that's what people who don't have enough faith like that's the term they use um and so so to really kind of understand like you know god's the one that brings job up to the devil in the story like i don't think many people realize this they, they think oh like the lord let like job get sick and it's like no like if you actually read it job one like the lord is like hey devil you're kind of scurrying around the earth have you seen Job? Dude, you know, and it's like, whoa, wait, you mean the Lord brings up Job and is the one that's like, yeah, test him, see what he does. You know, it's like, well, Job didn't do anything to deserve that. No, absolutely not. Because the Lord said, watch, I want to reveal my glory in this story. Mm -hmm. And that story involved human suffering. And so if that's good enough for Job, and if you read Job and talk about like some of the most beautiful poetic language of like who god is like towards the end in like job 42 
mm-hmm. is just it's so incredible like where were you when i laid the foundations of the earth like who are you like this is who i am and so if if i'm going to if i'm going to allow you to go through suffering like you better believe that it's 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 for your good and my glory yeah it's for a reason and and i love that you brought up job because he job kind of falls into that trap at first of like man i did everything right yeah I didn't do anything wrong and yet this bad thing is still happening in my life and I think that's that's certainly something I've thought in the past and had to work through and you know I'm sure a lot of us do is that it's not about getting everything perfect and then your life will be and then your life will be great and talk about anxiety right if you think oh if I just get everything perfect then everything's gonna go well and anything that goes wrong is my fault I mean that's a recipe for all sorts of anxiety right Absolutely. Uh, this being able to just say like, all right, my life will probably be pretty long and, uh, you know, things are going to go wrong and it's how I handle it and how I, you know, zoom out and get that bigger perspective, but it's going to make the, really, you're right. You said it's the central idea and that is the difference in a life of frustration or a life of accepting that things are, are difficult and, and go wrong and sometimes very tragically wrong and, mm-hmm we can respond to that in the way that God has taught us to respond through his word uh, yes. and then reflect that. And that's what people can see in us and say, I want that something went wrong in his life. And he responded in a, a totally different way than just, <laughs> you know, yelling at the sky or, or something, something like that. I, I'll tell you what, the faith that people don't want is the faith that says everything's fine, or I can make everything right. If you do this, everything will be okay because that's not a real faith. Like that's not like, like everyone knows deep down inside, like there's nothing I can do. Like bad things happen to good people. Okay. Like that's a truism. You talk about like going back to the abolition of man and mentioning about like moral relativism, like the truth is bad things happen to good people. So now what, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the gospel is actually what makes sense of that. You know, the true gospel is what makes sense of the fact that bad things happen to good people. And by the way, we have a savior and we worship a Lord that like some of his final words are like, um, in this world, you will have trouble. Like what? (laughs) Like, here's a guy that's like, um, by the way, I'm peacing out, but I'm letting you know, like, um, you're going to have suffering. You're going to have to deal with that. Like, so when I hear a, a gospel, that's like, you know, if you, believe these believe for this that and the other thing you'll get it and everything is going to be fine like my my lord and my savior says i shouldn't be chasing after what's perfect like my lord and savior says you're going to suffer so now what you know and by the way like for me that's anxiety it's ocd for for a lot of people especially in light of the pandemic you know mm-hmm. i can't tell you how many pastors and faith leaders um that have sent me messages talking about like bro, I never experienced this before. And now I just don't know what to do. Right. And, and, and like, I have to walk them through this proper theology of suffering and they're pastors and they're like, oh my God, you're right. You know? Mm. Oh my God. Yeah. I, holy cow, you know? Um, and I think there's a lot more people going through that now than ever before. Wow. And I'm assuming you started writing this book before the pandemic. (laughs) Right. Like, yeah, talk about God's providence, right, and His sovereignty. Like, um, the origins of this book date back to like 2018, 
is when I was first contacted by a publisher about, about turning just some of the stuff that I had been writing about mental health and, and anxiety and faith into a book. And so I got, uh, I signed the book contract in January of 2020 and, um, you know, literally like, a, you know, a month later, the world shuts down mm-hmm. and it's like, wow, I think this is going to be even more relevant than we realized. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it was already pretty relevant, but talk about times 10 after yeah. that. What were some of the things you saw in, in that moment, just in the world, in our culture? Um, did it inform how you wrote the book or the themes that you worked into it? Are there, are there some specific ideas and themes to this moment that came up for you? Yeah. You know, I think, um, I actually talked specifically about some people and a friend who didn't never had anxiety until the pandemic hit, you know, and I think what one of the ways I think that God has worked in that is like, so this person is a pastor and for him, he's like, until you know, when I, whenever I heard about people going through anxiety or depression or things like that, like, I think I was always a little skeptical. This is the the pastor saying this, or I was like, yeah, you know, like, like you, you can get through it, like just kind of power through and, and whatnot. He's like, until it hit me myself, I was never able to understand what you, you know, meaning me and others go through. He said, it's made me much more empathetic and it's made me a much better minister of the gospel because I have seen, um, like C.S. Lewis talks about, and I, I believe it's it's mere Christianity. Like, until you um, are forced to really defend or really understand what you believe, like it's hard to understand if you really believe it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, for C.S. Lewis, you know, he lost his wife, right? And he's like. I said a lot of things about God and who God was and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But until I lost my wife, I never fully realized, like, do I really believe it? Like until I'm forced, he, he uses much more poetic, <laughs> poetic terms, but, um, and I think that's what this pastor was saying. And so I kind of, I incorporate that in the book. I think um, in the end, this time, this past 19, 18, 19 months, has been about feeling a lack of control. Now I go, I've gone through that my whole life, right? Where I, when I don't feel control, like there's a fight or flight response that happens in me. And so I think a lot of people who never experienced anxiety before, it took really this instance where they were completely out of control to, for this to surface. And so really that's where kind of a lot of it a lot of the conversation has gone as I've talked to people is you don't have control. Okay. What does that mean? What does that look like? You know? Um, And so the conversation about like, and not in a trite way, you know, like as I've gone through this, (laughs) there's been a lot of well-intentioned people like, you know, God is in control. And it's like a Twyla Paris song or something, you know? And, and, and you're like, "Mm, I don't, it's harder for me to re- like hear that coming from you when I don't know that you really empathize with me. And so I think one of the things that God has done is as more experience, as more people have experienced this in light of the pandemic, 
it gives me the opportunity or it gives them the opportunity to speak into the lives of people who are experiencing it as well and point them more towards the gospel than ever before. Mm, wow, that's good. So when you, when you are talking to somebody that is is feeling this way, it, it, it is kind of the go-to to say something like, well, God's in control. And yes, he is, and he's the creator of the universe and all of that. But that, mm-hmm. for that moment, what, what would you suggest is a better way to respond and empathize with the person? So two things I would say, and I talk about this in the book and in a chapter about how to, especially for loved ones of people who have, who are suffering, like, you know, there's even, I even have a table, a little chart in the book of like, you know, instead of saying this, say this, instead of saying this, say this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I want to emphasize is that I think one of your goals, instead of trying to just I think that those conversations can be uncomfortable sometimes. And so I think a lot of times, like if you as someone who hasn't experienced anxiety or depression, start hearing that, like it just naturally makes you uncomfortable because you don't know what to say, right? And so what I would say is in those moments where you feel like you need to say something, like just take a step back. Like instead of trying to like solve what's going on in that person, acknowledge it and just say, wow, like, the, the best thing you can do is be honest. Like, wow, John, like, man, I haven't experienced that before. And I, and like, I can just imagine how tough that is and seek to understand, like ask more questions. Like, like instead of trying to offer and shut down the conversation, like press into the conversation, like press into the uncomfortableness a little bit and break through that. Mm-hmm. John, what, what, what do you, what goes through your head in those moments? Like, what have you thought about, instead of saying, well, God is, God is in control and blah, 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 like, what have you thought about God in those moments? You know, what do you feel like God is maybe showing you? Like, you don't have to have the answers. You can come to the table with 20 more questions, right? You know, I studied philosophy in college in part, right? And it's like, like Socrates was like this amazing person because like all he did was ask questions, Right. And by the way, he was also the wisest man in the world because he realized he wasn't the wisest man in the world. You know, like you can be the most, you know, you can be the best friend to someone with anxiety or depression by realizing like, I don't have all the answers. And I'm going to tell you that, you know, but what I am going to do is I'm going to sit with you in this moment. I'm going to sit with you in this mess. I'm going to seek to understand. And really my encouragement a lot in the book is before you ever offer some kind of trite response, like earn the right to speak into that person's life, like earn, like build a relationship. And then if like in the second or third or fourth conversation, you feel like there's really something you need to say, that's going to be received so much better than you hearing that they're suffering. You're like, oh man, just, just read Matthew five, you know, cast all your cares upon him, but he cares for you. Well, you know what, right now, I don't feel like any of that is true, <laughs> you know? And so unless you're really going to dig into the weeds and in the mud and in the mess with me, don't throw, like, take that elsewhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what have you realized about God in this process of writing the book and sharing? That there's more going on than I've ever realized. That, you know, kind of goes back to that, that, that theology of suffering, that like God is at 
work. I think so many times I have a tendency not only to focus on my circumstances, but to replay them in my head, right? And so um, I can get very near um, nearsighted. And so what I have come to realize is that like God is working, that things that maybe I can't make sense of right now, which by the way, I'm honest in the book that like, you know, my sister being killed um, in a car accident that wasn't her fault 75 on you know while going 75 miles an hour down the interstate and like her car disintegrating because someone crossed the line Mm. like i'm not going to pretend that i have that like all figured out like i don't pretend that i know exactly what god like why he allowed that to happen i can't figure it out you know now there are other things that he showed me that that have happened as a result of just that whole experience but like i'm still trying to i'm I'm still hoping that he reveals that to me someday and maybe someday he won't but um I've come to trust that he is, he is at work. I've just seen it too many times. And I, and I think Josh, that like, if we're honest with ourselves, even in the moments and for like for every painful situation that we don't understand, I think there's five others that if we force ourselves to look back on, we realize like, oh, wow, God was at work there. Or he did take that and redeem that, you know? Um, It's not his, you know, he's not happy that like David, uh, uh, you know, uh, had an affair with Bathsheba, right? But he still used that, right? Um, and so that's what I've, I, I, I've seen it in my life too many times. Wow. Words of wisdom, my friend. So good. John, where can we go to learn more, get plugged into to everything you're doing and especially the book? Yeah. So if you just go to findrestnow.com, findrestnow.com, um, there's stuff you can, you can sign up for my email that I send out about these topics. Um, and then it has all the information about where you can buy the book, well, whether it's Amazon or, or walmart.com or target.com, or, um, you know, maybe you're even listening to this and you're a church leader and you're like, wow, we have to have a bigger conversation about the proper theology of suffering. Like you can, you can purchase a bulk, uh, uh, order, um, or you can, you know, I'd love to talk to anyone else listening to this about it. So you can shoot me an email um, from there as well, and we can chat about it. Amazing. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us. I wish I could just talk to you all day, but uh, man, we'll have to do it again sometime soon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Josh. I really cannot say how much I love what you guys are doing and just how, um, just how awesome it is to see a group of Christians who do it, like don't cut corners, who do it right, you know, in a conversation we were having even before this, like who aren't creating inferior content for the superior being. Um, it's kind of become a mantra in my life. And so um, just thank you for what you and you and Israel Collective are doing. Man, thank you. And we are just so glad to have you as part of our community. The Israel Collective is an initiative of Christians United for Israel. To learn more about us, head to israelcollective.org, follow our Instagram, and if you want to get active and get involved, check out Christians United for Israel at cufi.org. They've got amazing educational resources, daily updates and emails, and just a ton of ways to learn, take action, make friends, and make a difference. There's a place for everyone at Kufi, so head on over. Thanks so much for listening.